1: Support comes from Pasadena Playhouse, presenting Jelly's Last Jam. Follow Jelly Roll Morton, the self proclaimed inventor of jazz, in this ambitious musical masterpiece that's sure to blow the roof off the theater. Performances begin May 29th. Tickets at PasadenaPlayhouse.org.
2: Good morning, it's Air Talk. I'm Larry Mantle. Good to have you with us. We hope you had a good weekend. Coming up later on our program, we'll talk about immigrant families and how sometimes discussions of mental health become fraught. Some of the challenges multi-generationally when parents need mental health support or when children are finding it hard to get their parents to understand that they may need some assistance with mental health challenges they're facing. Also, Next hour, we'll take a look at the dying art of cursive writing and those that are trying to keep that kind of handwriting going. That's all coming up next hour. We begin the program with the overwhelming condemnation and the sorrow that followed the release of the four videotapes in Memphis of multiple officers severely beating uh, young motorist, 29-year-old Tyree Nichols. Uh, after officers confronted him while he was driving his vehicle through the city. For those of you that saw the video, you know how extremely difficult it was to see those images. For those who have avoided it, that's understandable because the images are so disturbing to see. We're going to explore what happened in Memphis with multiple conversations today. And we thank you for joining us. We begin with use of force expert Tim Williams Jr. He's a retired senior deputy, super, or excuse me, detective supervisor for the LAPD on police procedure, use of force and wrongful conviction. Uh, Tim Williams, good to have you with us again, sir. We appreciate your being with us on Air Talk.
3: Yeah, well, thank you for having me.
2: First of all, your response to what we see, particularly in the post mounted from above video camera, which really gives us a fairly clear view of the attack on Mr. Nichols. Share with it from a from a policing standpoint, what you saw.
3: Well, from a policing standpoint, there is um, what I saw was what uh, law enforcement is not trained to do. From the um, the light standard um, uh, video that we saw, that was that was shown, we saw um, um, uh, uh, the defendant or the defendant being kicked in the head by by the by one of the officers. We saw another officer um, uh, strike him about the head and and upper body with the asp baton, It's a collapsible baton. We saw him being stood up and uh and punched in the face uh numerous times um um it appeared you know from the from the video that hasn't been uh verified yet but it appeared that he was handcuffed when he was being punched in the face uh about the face at that time when he was stood up and then he was sat down what is problematic with with me with all of that is the uh fact that it took about um It was stated about 20 minutes for paramedics to arrive and to render aid. And there was nothing, there were none of the officers there rendering aid to him um, um, uh, prior to the uh, paramedics arriving. So, again, what you saw was, uh, was a classic example of excessive force, a classic example of what you're not trained to do. And, again, there is a story behind this story administratively as to the concerns that I further have.
2: Well, and I want to get into the lack, uh, it appeared, of supervisorial oversight, or if there was, why, why it wasn't being um, exerted. But I, I want to go back to the beginning. we don't see on uh one of the body worn video camera uh, recordings the the very you know absolute start when when the first contact uh, is made with Mr Nichols, but the officers are so agitated that are there and are so confrontational shouting things at him it just made me wonder well what You know, what what could have set them up? Why were they so uh, in his face, uh, so upset with him? You know, right from the get go, at least from what we see on that recording, what could potentially explain that in your view?
3: Well, if you go back to the first, there is on the the ground level, there was some body cameras, uh, body cam video that was shown. And uh, it was shown that the officer uh, that, that approached the car immediately physically snatched them out of the car. Um, and then it went downhill from there. Um, and you talk about supervisory, uh, supervisors at the scene. I saw no supervisors at the scene. And, uh, and, um, there was communications being, being done, uh, over the communication system. And I didn't hear any uh, supervisor, um, uh, giving directions and, and, and telling them that a supervisor is responding to their location as well. So there's a lot of things that that that, that went wrong. Uh, one of the things that I see, and again, you brought that up as supervisorial uh, responsibility. I saw, I didn't see that at all uh, from the videos that I saw.
2: From from a competent policing standpoint. When you had the officers in pursuit after Mr. Nichols ran, would there have been um, a supervisor called in at that point? Where typically would someone who said, we need a supervisor on scene?
3: You would you would ask for a supervisor on scene. A supervisor would de-escalate or cause it, the situation to be de-escalated. You shouldn't have a supervisor on scene de-escalate. These officers should be trained in de-escalation. And, uh, if they aren't, then that's the fault of the Memphis Police Department. They should be trained in the art of de-escalation. Number one. Number two, there is a systemic, uh, problem in, in law enforcement. That's not only with Memphis, but it's nationwide is that if you run, you're going to pay. And, and what we saw, um, from the video cameras, what happens, um, sometimes when And often when when suspects run away from officers and when they catch them, uh, they pay a price.
2: We're talking with Tim Williams, Jr., retired senior detective supervisor, the LAPD, uh, and an expert on police procedure, use of force and wrongful convictions. Also with us from the University of Southern California, uh, joining us, criminal law expert and director of SC's Agents of Change Civil Rights Initiative, Olu Orange. Uh, thank you very much. Good to have you with us today. Um, share with us, you know, as we as we look at this thing escalating right right at the very beginning, your thoughts about the response of the officers here. What could possibly ec- explain this right from the start, this um, being so over the top and how they dealt with Mr. Nichols? Good
4: morning. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, I, I have no explanation for why they were um, so aggravated, so angry uh, upon the start of the video, which looked like that's when they first encountered him. Um, the only thing that, that I can reference uh, just in terms of experience and, and culture um, which is somewhat like the uh, what Mr. Williams referenced in terms of if you run, you're gonna get it. Uh, that in the black community, it has long been understood that black police officers are the worst uh, toward black suspects. Uh, that is the only thing I can point to in trying to understand why these officers, were so horrible toward this young man at the very outset
2: i under i understand what you're saying but it, it i mean memphis is a is a very black city you assume these officers that is the majority of the public that they are probably interacting with given the demographics of the city It's just hard to believe that this is what they're doing, you know, every night when they're going out on patrol is approaching motorists in this kind of manner. Maybe they are, but it's just um, it's hard to believe this is like a regular nightly occurrence for them. And that's and that's, um, uh, Mr. Orange, what I'm trying to make sense of and anything that you could observe from that. Well, well, let
4: me just point this out. So I lived in. Uh, 1990 through 98
2: I'm sorry you you cut cut out a little bit you live where was that you said I'm sorry We're we're going to try and get that connection straightened out with uh, Olu Orange, who's criminal law expert and director of the USC Agents of Change Civil Rights Initiative. Also joining us is frequent guest on AirTalk. it has been for many years, University of Southern California professor of law, Jody Armour. Professor, it's good to have you with us again. Um, that's something that you would like to take on what I was just asking uh, Mr. Orange about.
5: Yeah, that's that's a, a, a great question, Larry, is this practice business as usual? Well, yes, you hear in many communities, in many heavily policed black communities here in L.A. and around the nation, you hear these kinds of stories all the time. And it is shocking to a lot of the rest of the citizenry that one portion of the population is constantly undergoing these kinds of encounters with police that are fraught, intense. You know, Larry, I'm a USC law professor, and I've described to you multiple fraught encounters I've had just driving my car from View Park to USC, down MLK or Exposition. You know, multiple encounters, you know, and, and I couldn't, I don't know what else I could do. You know, other than in and, and this case, would, uh, you know, when we're talking about Nichols, Tyree Nichols, uh, the police chief said they could not find any video evidence of him doing anything wrong, even reckless driving. So this is kind of pure pretextual stop stuff. And I think it is, uh, you know, sadly, very routine in certain communities, but not others.
2: We're talking with USC Law Professor Jody Armour, also from SC, criminal law expert Olu Orange, and Tim Williams, Jr., who is a use-of-force expert, uh, frequently testifies in court cases about police practices. If you have questions for our expert guests, we're at 866-893-5722, 866-893-5722. You can also email your questions to at Comments at kpcc.org. Please include your location and your first name. I think we have Olu Orange back. Um, Professor Armour, uh, your SC colleague was, was just saying that this is business as usual in many black communities with police engaging in pretextual stops and then, um, behaving very aggressively toward people. But of course, Mr. Orange, in this case, the aggressiveness is so extreme from the very beginning um i mean is there any way we can know if in fact this is if this is how this scorpion unit since disbanded behaved on a regular basis
4: i would not be surprised i have seen it firsthand in other cities uh, which is what i was trying to get at when the the signal cut out um this is this is not surprising to those of us who live in, as Professor Armour pointed out, uh, overly and heavily policed communities. this This is not surprising. It's daily operation. I don't know about Scorpion, but I do know about other cities where I've lived, and I've seen it firsthand. I've been standing there.
2: Now, one of the um, the reasons, uh, at least that's publicly given, for this unit being created was Memphis was going through a dramatic increase in violent crime, shooting incidents, the idea that this force, I, I guess, would be able to somehow serve a preventive function. Um, your thoughts, Mr. Orange, about um, not just this particular unit, but others in other departments with high rates of gun violence that have been created with a similar mission?
4: Well, I would say, and, and I think uh, Mr. Williams would would certainly agree with this, A, a an increase in crime does not justify uh, violation of police protocol and civil rights. But police officers still have to be proper police officers in fighting crime when these units are created. And so, you know, to the extent that folks point at the justification for the creation of the units being increased crime that doesn't justify breaking the law
2: tim williams jr your thoughts on this in units similar to to scorpion that are set up with this sort of um for lack of a better term kind of a strike force mentality
3: well um in my 49 years in working this criminal justice system is spending over three decades um, just about three decades on lapd um, these um, specialized units are important when they come to dealing with issues of, of crime, uh, uh, gang activity, uh, murders in certain pockets of the city and cities throughout the country. Now, what you've got to do, you've got to have supervision in there to make sure that there is constitutional policing being experienced. You just can't go up willy-dilly and doing what you need and have to do, and that is important. The second thing is that you got to examine the effectiveness of what you're doing. You may make 100 arrests in one month, but of, of those arrests, how many meet the standard of the the DA's office or the prosecutorial office to get these cases filed? And if they are filed, how many are 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 are, um, are convicted? And and you will and you will get the you will find. But the answers may not be to the liking of, of the administrators of the of the department. The thing is that numbers don't mean anything as it relates to arrests. The quality of arrests, and like it was saying that you got to do constitutional policing. You don't have, you can't be running um ref yard in, into the community. You can't be um uh, putting everybody that's on the corner in jail. You can't arrest yourself out of the problems. You gotta solve the problems, you gotta deal with the issues that are causing the problems and to be effective and to to serve the community that you are paid to serve.
2: We're talking with Tim Williams, Jr., formerly and for, as he said, decades with LAPD from USC's Agents of Change Civil Rights Initiative, director of that program, Olu Orange, and USC law professor and constitutional scholar Jody Armour with us on AirTalk. In case you just joined us, a police spokesperson in Memphis says a sixth officer has been disciplined for his involvement in the brutal beating and arrest of Tyree Nichols. Officer Preston Hemphill was relieved of duty shortly after the arrest of Nichols, um, but they had not disclosed at that point Hemphill's role in the arrest, uh, and it was not immediately released that information, according to the spokesperson, because Hemphill was not fired, and the department typically releases information about officers who were relieved of duty after an investigation ends. It's air talk on KPCC. We'll continue our conversation with our expert guests as we talk about the terrible documentation of of the uh, extraordinary beating of the young man in Memphis. Uh, that video that was released late Friday and has received universal condemnation for the actions of the officers involved. We'll be back in one minute. It's Air Talk. I'm Larry Mantle, coming up a little bit later this hour. We'll talk about the debate over natural gas fueled stoves. City of Los Angeles, among other cities, uh, some major ones, uh, have banned the installation of natural gas cooktops in newly constructed homes and commercial buildings. Induction stoves is what's largely replacing them. We'll talk about the pros and cons of induction versus natural gas. Natural gas, of course, problematic in two ways, one of which because of the burning of fossil fuel and its effects on climate. But second, secondly, indoor pollution that's caused by the burning of natural gas in the home. We'll talk about that coming up later this hour. Right now, we are reacting to the video release late Friday of uh, the beating to death of uh, Tyree Nichols in Memphis. Uh, we have three experts with us law professor from USC Jody Armor, uh, USC's Olu Orange and Tim Williams Jr. who's an expert on use of force, police procedures and wrongful convictions for decades with the LA Police Department's elite unit. We're at 866-893-5722 for your questions. Jason in Silver Lake says if this is a classic example, of police brutality, then we need to shut down all policing as it is and build it up from the ground up. Uh, Professor Armour, your response to Jason's comment.
5: Yeah, we keep returning to this uh, terrible deja vu, Larry. And we talk about reforms. We talk about de-escalation training implicit bias training. And here we are again. There are more uh, deaths uh, from police shootings last year than since they started recording them ever and that's after all of the 2020 marches so it looks like we may have to be much more fundamental in our thinking for example and some of my friends in law enforcement are recognizing this and saying, and more often we need to reduce the footprint of police why are police in traffic stops for example this was a death related to a traffic stop on um, communities that have taken police out of traffic stops have not seen an increase in traffic fatalities so this is, again, a place where we can take police out of houselessness here, out of drug, you know, kind of um, a, a failed war on drugs and have them focus on solving serious crimes, which is what we all want. And um, I think this is an opportunity to start to think in those fundamental new terms.
2: Professor, do you think that in you know, many cities that uh, where you've got a citizenry that's heavily armed, that you realistically could hire people to do traffic enforcement when they know they're going to be approaching cars with people that are armed and and they presumably, the people uh, conducting the stop, wouldn't be armed themselves? Uh, How many people would do that?
5: Well, yeah, what we found is they found with the studies is you can increase traffic safety without having police or any armed person uh, adopting someone for routine traffic violations, not for driving recklessly and doing things that are endangering others around you. You can, you have cameras, you have ways to, you know, redesign the streets to make them safer. There are ways to reduce traffic fatalities without having armed agents of the state pulling people over and especially giving them pretext grounds to pull them over like a crack in their taillight or having an air freshener hanging from their rear view mirror, which is what we've done.
2: Stu in Santa Monica says, I haven't heard any condemnation fr- coming from police unions or associations criticizing what happened in Memphis. Stu, actually, um, I had multiple statements from uh, unions uh, across the country that arrived in, in my email Friday night, not long after the video was released. Here's one of them. Uh, I'll read just a portion. The L.A. Police Protective League, San Francisco Police Officers Association, San Jose Police Officers Association and the State of Hawaii Organization of Police Officers issue this statement. The killing of Tyree Nichols at the hands of the five cowardly former Memphis police officers is repugnant and the complete antithesis of how honorable law enforcement professionals conduct themselves every day. These accused individuals were fired, charged with murder and other crimes, arrested, fingerprinted, photographed, and jailed just like any other suspected criminal. Their brutalization of Mr. Nichols, was horrific, and for his family to have to view the video of Tyree suffering through these evil acts is unfathomable. We pray that they find the strength to deal with this unmitigated loss. Our unions renew our pledge to work with Congress to enact national policing standards that mirror the standards in place in Los Angeles, San Jose, San Francisco, and Hawaii, and require rigorous ongoing training on the duty to intervene, duty to render aid, de-escalation, use of force, and other initiatives. Tim Williams' Junior, your response to that joint statement and similar ones that have come from other police unions across the country.
3: Well, I want to weigh in on a couple of things. Um, the um, The union's statement is not consistent, in my opinion, and I, this is almost 50 years of experience, in my opinion, with what goes on in this country. Um, when white officers are doing this, doing these types of things, there is an issue of trying to support them um, there. And then when, when the Blacks do something, now we have this condemnation. Now, I was president of the Black Law Enforcement Association of Southern California uh, during my time. And I was uh, on the board of directors for the National Black Police Association. And um, we had problems with the unions, major problems with the unions as it relates to their their, their um, comments and their um, uh, you know uh, the things that they that that they supported that was going on in the minority communities. Nothing has changed in in the in the, in that time. And um, and, you know, as as listening from it from a professional, knowing what what has gone through dealing with the unions, uh, through my through my time as in leadership uh, representing the blacks in law enforcement in Southern California, and um, what I've seen going on dealing with unions as it relates to my work in 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 the civil rights arena um in, in cases all across this country it's not consistent. All right. Now there was some now there was some discussion about what can be done. Well, you know, you can what needs to be done, you got to get the right people in the system. Um, the problem is that you have retired law enforcement doing background checks and and of, of people coming on and what you're seeing is a replication of, of the, of the systemic issues that, 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 that will be amplified by bringing the same type of mentality in the department. Um, I, I remember I had to, I was testifying in a high profile case in Florida and the DA asked me, did LAPD, the LAPD taught you your core values? And I says, absolutely not. We said, my mother and father gave me my core values and I brought my core values into the organization. So the thing is that you got to bring people with proper core values into the organization to stop this, uh, what, what we see is going on in our, in our communities. Is this a, is this a short-term impact? No, this is going to take some time because okay. you got, to select the accordion. You got to bring people in that, 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 um, that, uh, that are, that will do the constitutional policing and you got to get the problem individuals out <laughs> and try the, 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 um, the systemic Approach that, that that we see nationwide,
2: and Mr. Williams, I say this not to um, counteract what you said about your experience of um, the Police Officers Association uh, being more outraged about um, uh, things happening uh, with white officers, uh, or and being more outraged at black officers. I, I did want to say, though, in the case of George Floyd's murder, that there was. Similar to this universal condemnation from police unions, it seems like when when you have something with the kind of video evidence that George Floyd's murder and and this case have that um, that rises to such a, a level that, it, you know, everybody is is condemning.
3: It does. It does to up to a point, but it's not it's not consistent. That's the only thing I'm saying. Yeah. Now, these officers was wrong as three left shoes. They were dead wrong, but the, the unions has got to be consistent with their with their with their criticism and support. Again, I've 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 testified over 200 times in court as it relates to civil rights and, and and wrongful conviction issues. I've dealt with the unions' um, uh, comments nationwide in, in certain arenas. So I I I'm not talking about what I hear. I'm talking about what I know. But I know what I've dealt with.
2: I want to thank you, sir, for being with us again. Tim Williams, Jr., who frequently joins us, talking about police procedures and uses of force for decades in uh, leadership positions with the LAPD retired senior detective supervisor. Also, my thanks to USC law professor Jody Armour, who also joins us frequently with his expertise on air talk, And with us, the director of the USC Agents of Change Civil Rights Initiative, criminal law expert, Olu Orange. As well. And we thank you all for being with us. It's Air Talk on KPCC. Of course, continuing coverage of the response to the video release of the beating death of Tyree Nichols in Memphis throughout the course of the day, including coming up on NPR's Here and Now. They're going to look at that um, that unit, the Scorpion unit that the Memphis police disbanded over the weekend. That's coming up right after Air Talk at 11 o'clock, NPR's Here and Now. But we turn our attention now to natural gas cooktops and the criticism on two measures, one of which is because they burn fossil fuel that they contribute to global warming and as a result, Los Angeles and some other cities like Berkeley has banned the installation of natural gas cooktops in any new construction, residential or commercial buildings. The second issue is uh, the health issues involved, the indoor air pollution that's created by the burning of natural gas inside the home. Joining us to talk about the health aspect and then we'll talk about the cooking part is Assistant Professor of Pediatrics and Interim Director of the Center for Climate, Health and the Global Environment at Harvard University, Aaron Bernstein. Dr. Bernstein, very good to have you with us today. We appreciate it. Um, First of all, we all understand, I think, the effects of burning fossil fuels, CO2 that's created and the effect on the climate. What about indoor air pollution? Uh, How significant a contributor can natural gas cooktops be to that? Sure. First, uh,
1: thanks for having me. Uh, I think in terms of the health effects of gas stoves, it's important to realize that when we burn gas, we release pollutants into the air that are well known to cause harm. Um, First and foremost among them are Uh, a group of chemicals called NOx, particularly nitrogen dioxide. And it's no secret that when you burn natural gas, that's created. And it can reach levels in a kitchen where there's not good air circulation that are well known to make it harder for people to breathe, especially people with lung disorders. Uh, And so people have rightly started to say, is it a good idea to use my gas stove, especially if I have asthma or have a person in my household who has Uh, difficulty breathing.
2: Now, uh, I have a family member who regularly makes beans and she puts, you know, the pot on and it'll, you know, be cooking all day. Is that a particularly greater risk even if you're doing low temperature uh, cooking on a gas cooktop when it's running all day like that in the house? I think it's important for everyone to realize that we can take very
1: simple steps to reduce exposure and that involves air circulation. So whether you're boiling water or Cooking something on a stove that creates a lot of smoke, if you have a vent over your uh, stove, use it. Uh, If you don't, uh, particularly for folks in Southern California, you can open your doors and windows, use a fan most of the year. And that can really reduce uh, how much air pollution indoors, not just from your stove, but even from other sources. Uh, Of course, it's also important to remember in your neck of the woods that. There can be a lot of outdoor air pollution. And so it's important as many people in Southern California do now to look at air quality uh, reports um, just to check
2: to make sure that the air quality outside is, is okay. And and how significant a threat is this? I mean, we have people who make their living working in restaurants, for example. Do do we have evidence that those that are standing over a natural gas, you know, big commercial range all day, that they have higher rates of respiratory problems? Now, a lot of them smoke, too. So that can be, a, 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 I know, a factor that, that complicates this. But do we have data on that? Well, I think it's really
1: dependent on how well ventilated the stoves are. And in a lot of commercial kitchens, there are excellent ventilatory, you know, ventilation systems, um, but those are not universal. And that's also true in homes. And so I I think that it's, you know, important that regardless of where you are, that that air circulates and that, you know, the exposures are minimized. So, uh, you know, if you don't have to use a high flame for as long, um, you know, at home, do that. Uh, it's also important to realize that for many uh, homes in particular, there are other sources of indoor air pollution. Uh, Some people have wood stoves. Some people burn incense. Uh, There are many things that create um, stuff that goes into the air that can be hard to breathe. And, and again, the name of the game is minimize, uh, you know, burning stuff indoors, especially when it's not well ventilated, and stoves, gas stoves are often that case. Uh, And uh, make sure that that you get air circulation as best you can.
2: We're talking with Aaron Bernstein of of Harvard University. Also with us, Los Angeles Times cooking columnist Ben Mims, who wrote a piece about the pros and cons of induction uh, cooktops versus natural gas ones. Ben, thank you for being with us. You raised an issue that immediately came to my mind because I know induction doesn't get as hot as a natural gas flame can. And I was thinking, well, yeah, how do you how do you sear a steak on the cooktop? How how do you you? Know, if you do walk cooking with high temperatures so um is induction able to to um provide a competent way to do those
6: you know i think that is one of the main uh, drawbacks i hear from most uh, people who are you know against it is that it does not get um as high it doesn't hold that kind of heat and you know and so many cultural foods are based upon this idea of like the flame kissing the food and like having this like super high heat to uh, maintain to get these like crust uh, you know crusty sears on steaks and things like that and you know in my experience when uh, cooking with it you know it does not get as high of heat but also at the same time I feel that it has so many other benefits that like everything you know people can learn to adapt their cooking to uh, you know these new uh, these new ways and so I feel like you know if that means you know cooking things in smaller batches or you know, starting preheating the pans and starting them uh, at different times, then that's something that people will do uh, to get kind of the, the greater benefit of the cooking style overall.
2: It'd be too bad you couldn't have like, a, you know, a single natural gas burner just for those times when you need that very high heat and then use the induction. Have a hybrid kind of a stove would be kind of a cool thing. Um, but, but so what is the advantage of the induction? Is it just the consistency of the heat and how rapidly it heats up?
6: Yeah, the consistency was the main draw I found when we tested. We did side by side testing of, uh, caramelizing sugar, um, frying rice and getting water to boil in all, uh, three mediums. And I found that, you know, induction was faster, you know, to bring a pot of water to a boil. Um, it also was extremely consistent when it came to caramelizing sugar. Um, it obviously did not get as hot as a gas, uh, you know, flame would for like the rice stir frying, but I found that uh, you know the consistency and the, the rapidness with which um, it it got hot was more of a boon to it than uh, than you know than its ability to hold heat. So I did find that the consistency is uh, the best part and makes kind of makes everything you're cooking uh, you know across the board as even as possible. And for me, I feel like that is uh, a big draw to mostly okay. to home cooks. Um, because I know that is something they're always concerned about with recipes. And so to have something that kind of takes away yeah. this, uh, you know, kind of wild guesswork was, was uh, good for
2: them. Ben, I know you got to run, but just real quickly, is, is a possible induction technology will improve on the ability to deliver higher heat? Is that or is that is that built into the technology that it's at the max now?
6: You know, that's a great question. I don't know the answer to that where the state of it is now, but I would assume that that is what they're headed to next. Because, again, for me, that was the only drawback I found, and mm-hmm. I have to believe there is a way to improve it to make that um, a possibility. So if they're not working on it, they should be, because that was that's the thing that would sell it outright to everyone.
2: Ben, thank you for joining us. We appreciate it very much. Thank you very much for having me. Ben Mims, cooking columnist for the Los Angeles Times, who had the pros and cons in his recent LA Times piece about induction versus natural gas cooktops. Also with us, our culinary expert for this segment, Ayesha Arrington, chef, culinary creative, and star of the reality cooking show that we just saw promoted on football yesterday, Next Level Chef. Thank you so much, Chef Arrington, for joining us again. We appreciate it very much. Have you uh, used an induction cooktop at at any point to try it
7: out? Uh, It's my pleasure to contribute to the conversation. Absolutely. Um, I'm very well-versed in all styles of uh, cooktops. Um, For me, I like an induction burner for a big stockpot, right, if something's going to cook for a long period of time. um, As previously noted, it does offer that consistency um, that you can sort of set the dial and you know, you know, it's not going to boil over. Um, the issue I see really for me when I use induction cooking is once you remove that pan, it, it loses heat w- rapidly, right? So I think that's one of the drawbacks to um, being able to cook over live fire or a gas powered stove is that you can really feel and you're sort of harnessing that heat source, right? You can feel the heat, you can turn it up and down. and and you don't have to wait so long for the pan to get hot again.
2: And I realize we didn't really talk about the technology of the induction cooktop, but my understanding is you need specialized cookware, just like you're describing, and it needs to be in contact with the magnets that conduct the heat into the pan. So that's what you're saying. When you take it away from the magnets, then it it loses heat almost instantly?
7: Precisely that. And, um, you know, it's interesting because... You know, and especially in in production cooking, right, when you have, you know, 200, 300 guests on the book um, in a restaurant setting, um, it's a lot more difficult to harness that heat in a rapid pace if uh, you have a rail full of tickets, you know, and guests waiting for food. So, you know, it might not work so much um, in restaurant settings, but in the home, I can see, you know, pros and cons, but... Yeah, I mean, especially in restaurants, we, you know, there's stainless steel cooking um, pans that work and some cast irons, but, you know, like an aluminum pan that you see in maybe some of these, like, mom and pop shops, like, are not going to work on um, those induction burners.
2: All right, uh, we have Paul in Long Beach says I'm skeptical of the alleged pollutants released when cooking with natural gas. Uh, it's been a cooking fuel for a hundred years. It feels like environmental hypochondria to me. That's Paul in Long Beach, uh, Dr. Aaron Bernstein. You you want to respond to that? I mean, I I know this is well documented that um, uh, NOx is is released from cooking. You know, we know the negative health effects of that. But in terms as a practical matter. Um, do we have a sense of how many people are actually, their health is made worse by this? Sure. It's a really important question because I
1: think a lot of people have used gas for a long time and been told that it's a superior way of cooking, but no one's really talked about any potential health effects. So I, I think, like Paul, many many people are surprised here. Um, but the reality is, is that we didn't look very hard until relatively recently. And what we found is that A large share of children with asthma, for instance, may have, in fact, developed asthma because they're breathing exhaust from stoves. Um, Some estimates put that number nationally in the United States around 12 percent. So we know that, you know, children have asthma, but we didn't actually ask, why are they getting asthma? And some of that has to do with their exposure to pollution, which in some homes may be from their gas stoves.
2: We have a listener, Mitch, who says, I have a gas stove. I also have three tall five and six foot gas wall heaters with pilot lights in my apartment. I'd like to know about the safety of that. Um, and wondering, is there any way to mitigate with a fan or something like that exposure? Um, Aaron, Aaron Bernstein, your, your thoughts on that? Yeah,
1: good question, Mitch. I think the the emissions from a pilot light are relatively small, although they're constant in comparison to a stove. And we also tend to be not directly over those pilot lights. So, you know, yes, you know, um, furnaces should be serviced properly. They should be ventilated to the outdoors properly. Um, um, but, you know, people are generally right over gas burners and there often is no ventilation. So I think, in terms of reducing exposure to knocks and doors, the, the, the biggest bang for the buck is going to be making sure that stoves are, are well
2: ventilated. We'll continue our conversation with our health expert from Harvard University, Aaron Bernstein, Assistant Professor of Pediatrics and Interim Director of Harvard's Center for Climate, Health and the Global Environment. Also with us, Naisha Arrington, Chef Arrington, is star of Next Level Chef, a culinary creative as well, and we'll get more thought of her, from her, about how to effectively cook with induction. If that's what we're going to have going forward, we're at eight six six eight nine three five seven two two. Back in one minute. Induction versus natural gas cooktops, as some cities like Los Angeles have banned the installation of natural gas stoves. Uh, for new construction. That includes commercial buildings, and you wonder what that's going to mean for restaurants that might go into new developments if they're not going to be able to install uh, natural gas lines and uh, purchase natural gas um, ranges for uh, their commercial purposes. Uh, joining us is, is Chef uh, Naisha Arrington. Chef, is there any way for restaurants going into those new developments that they might be able to to still um, effectively cook using only induction?
8: That's uh, a,
7: it's a great question, you know, and, and noted earlier, I, I think that um, the lens really to look through down the line is how does the food adapt to the heat source? You know, I mean, in breakfast places and brunch places where you have, you know... 20 pans on the on the stove, we're able to do that because we can harness the heat elements, right? Once you're using induction, you really just have only that one spot to cook off of, right? And, then, and that one particular pan that works on the induction. So things like slow cooking stocks or soups or sauces work great for that um, and not fast-paced cooking. But if you're making an omelet, for example, you know, You want a high power heat where you can go on and off the stove very quickly without having to wait for that pan to reheat. So in cooking in volume, it's a lot more um, challenging, you know, I think really ultimately to find the space to put those um, sort of magnetic heat surfaces in on the line.
2: Let's talk with Kelly in Venice Beach. Good to have you with us on Air Talk. I understand you have both a vintage gas stove and a full induction range, so you really get a side-by-side in your home.
0: Yeah, uh, I am not the cook. I am the uh, cooking show widow. I got to see my first football game on TV yesterday for the whole season. Um, the We've got an O'Keefe and Merritt, 1953, four burners and a griddle on top an oven on the right, and a grill-evator, adjustable height of the grill uh, for for uh, broiling meats on the left-hand side. The thing's huge. We built the whole kitchen around it. The other At the other location, I've got apparently, it came with the place, uh, the best-rated uh, uh, induction stovetop as part of the stove arrangements there. Me, I cook in the microwave. But my wife cooks every night, and she has... She refused to give up the O'Keefe and Merritt when we did that, and now she's fallen in love with the uh, induction. She does everything from sauces to omelets to um, uh, uh, just grilling meats and uh, seems to be just happy. She says, uh, you know, we did have to go out and buy a new set of cookware. Yeah. She turned around and fell in love with those so much that she made me buy her a second set for back here on the O'Keefe and Merritt.
2: So the, she likes it for omelets, That's because I know, you know, I, I'll make omelets occasionally at home, and so, you know, I, I'm pulling the, just like uh, what Chef Arrington was saying, I'm pulling the, you know, the pan off, I'm using kind of the ambient heat left in the pan to finish after the, the fold of, you know, the omelet and, and melting cheese or whatever, and the idea that it has to be, you know, uh, in contact to get any heat out of it, it seems challenging to me, but so interesting that you're is really taken to induction chef Arrington. your your thoughts about that
8: yeah i think
7: um ultimately it's uh up to the chef i think that's really the beauty in um in cooking right i think there's ways to work around and build actually the recipe and techniques around what the heat source is but um it's an interesting two-sided multifaceted question, you know because it's really a lot of the heat is in the in the audible and the tangible in the in the essence of cooking, right? The smell of the smoke, the feel of that fire and and the art of being able to harness that is one side of it. And then I think also there are things to be celebrated around induction, you know from a health standpoint, from you know just a consistency of heat standpoint as well. Um, I I, I see both. I've cooked in um, professional kitchens with both as well. Um, But I think really it's going to be interesting to see how it affects uh, high-volume cooking in restaurants.
2: Uh, Nick in the Hollywood Hills emailed us, I love induction, but I have to ban some family members from the kitchen when we have gatherings because uh, they have pacemakers. Um, uh, Dr. Bernstein, that's uh, an issue with induction? A person with a pacemaker has to avoid being close to them? Yeah, it's a great uh,
1: point that Nick raises. Um, Some people with pacemakers, you know, can't go through airport security without being careful because of the magnets there. And there are magnets in induction cooktops. So, yes, if you have a pacemaker, it's important to be careful. And certainly talking to the manufacturer of that pacemaker is important. Also, insulin pumps uh, for people with diabetes. uh, They should be sure if you have an induction cooktop to talk to the manufacturer uh, to make sure that it's okay to
2: be near it when, when it's operating. All right, Nick, thank you for that. Jay emailed, my ceramic uh, top stove died when I went to replace it. I noticed the new ceramic top stoves have temperature limiters. Induction stoves seem to have the same problem with sustaining heat levels. Now with ceramic top stoves having the limiters on them, gas is the only way to go if you need high and sustained heat. Jay, thank you for that. Judy and Valley Glenn emailed, let's not leave out the issue that uh, the natural gas bills have gone up five times from what they were last year. We were warned, but this was incredible. Boy, Judy, is that the sticker shock we're all getting in our natural gas bills is shocking. Uh, Deborah in Willett's emailed, isn't the drag about induction that you need special cookware? It doesn't work with just any pan, right? Deborah, that is correct. It's specialized uh, cookware that uh, responds to the magnets in the cooktop that is essential for induction cooking, at, at least at as the technology currently exists. I want to thank our guest Chef Naisha Arrington of Next Level Chef, culinary creative as well. My thanks to Dr. Aaron Bernstein of Harvard University, where he directs the Center for Climate, Health, and the Global Economy. He's also Assistant Professor of Pediatrics sharing the health concerns about natural gas cooktops in the home, but also sharing ways uh, with opening doors, uh, using uh, hoods over top, you can also significantly mitigate the effects of uh, the NOx uh, fumes that are released into the home. And my thanks to LA Times cooking columnist Ben Mims as well. We have much more coming up in the second hour of Air Talk. I'll tell you about it in a moment. It's Air talk. I'm Larry Mantle. So good to have you with us today. Coming up, a look at cursive, which in many schools is no longer being taught. We'll find out the reasons why and whether the slow death of cursive is a good thing or whether listeners will rise to its defense. That's coming up later this hour. But first, we have the questioning of mental health services in Asian-American communities after the terrible mass shootings in Monterey Park here in Southern California and Half Moon Bay in the San Francisco Bay Area. Uh, We're going to be talking about intergenerationally some of the challenges there between immigrant parents and their children who might have been born in the U.S. or came to the U.S. at a young age, because those conversations can be quite challenging. Uh, Joining me is Pasadena-based psychologist who focuses on cross-cultural counseling and intergenerational family conflicts, Sing Fang Chang. Thank you so much for being with us again on AirTalk. What are, just very generally before we get into specifics, some of the challenges here that that we see in immigrant communities around mental health? Hi, Larry.
9: Thank you for having me. I think one of the more significant um, reasons for it's challenging to get older Asian generation or Asian in general to seek out therapy is the issue of pride. And there is a Chinese saying, say, (laughs) that means you don't reveal family embarrassment to any outsiders. So what considered as family embarrassment could be issues such as Uh, They think their adult children marry somebody they don't like or it's not up to their standard or not getting a job as a professional or as serious as domestic violence. So all of these uh, can have very severe effect or the other issue would be the expectation, the difference in expectation uh, in different generation. For example, the older generation, the assumption in their culture would be, when they get old, their children will live with them and take care of them. But for Asian American who grew up here, uh, they adopt a more Westernized uh, individualism value. Um, so they don't necessarily think they need to stay with their parents um, and <clears throat> live with them. You know, they could their own life while they they might visit. Every now and then, um, so their parents, sometimes on the more severe <clears throat> side, the parents would think that as um, they fail in parenting because their kids don't want to live with them and want to move out.
2: We'll let you you clear your your voice and we'll come back to you. That's Pasadena-based psychologist Sing Fang Chang joining us on AirTalk. And I'd like to hear from you if you are part of an immigrant family where this has been particularly challenging. There might be cultural challenges that are part of this or things that have been raised by Dr. Chang here. We're at 866-893-5722. 866-893-5722. Or you can email us at at comments at kpcc.org please include your location and your first name and also uh agreeing to come on and join us uh is our air talk producer manuel valladares manny thank you for for joining us because i know this issue really hit home for you and your mom and you're you're a part of an immigrant family
10: yeah, so uh, my mom had actually originally came here from Mexico um, before I was born, like a couple years before. So uh, essentially what ended up like happening was that like, uh, obviously, like as a kid, you're going to view your mom as like a superhero. And I think that's something that I always like held. But obviously there was like mistakes made. You, you can't do a perfect job raising a kid. And I feel like me, at least at like an earlier age from where I am now, uh, trying to confront her with that, I feel like it was something where like she definitely found it like, oh, did, why, why are you, like, mad at me? Why do you, like, hate me? And I think it was something that she very much, like, took to heart. And it was, like, a very difficult, like, conversation to have. It wasn't until I was able to, like, get into therapy, really understand, like, my feelings and articulating them that like we were actually able to have an, a dialogue where like I felt like both of us were like growing as a result of that. But it, it took a lot of time. And I mean, obviously not like every immigrant story, it feel like in terms of mental health, but it definitely is like one of them.
2: How did you get to that place with your mother that there was an understanding and she was able to accept this as not being an indictment of her parenting?
10: Yeah, I, I think for that it was it took a lot on like a. I think, like, understanding on my end that, obviously, I need to be, like, sensitive to, like, some of these things. Because, like, obviously, like, uh, as a kid, like, I'm going to want to, like, feel that, like, anger that I had as a kid in terms of, like, some mistakes that maybe, like, rubbed me the wrong way and led to, like, me needing to go to therapy. But also, at the same time, I think it was something where it's, like, hey, like. I'm really proud of being like your child and I really like essentially prefacing with like a good thing because I think at the end of the day, I do appreciate all the work that my mom did for me. It was just kind of like the other things that we need to work through together to, make things a little bit more easy
2: i think it's sometimes hard manny for parents i mean speaking is one that every child has things that need to be addressed whether it's it's uh physical issues whether it's mental health whether it's academic whether it's social relationships um that's just part of being human and as a parent it's it's just something that is is challenging because we all want the best for our kids and sometimes we do take things personally as though you know where have i failed or you know are you saying i failed but i i think um the, you know, the understanding that this is just part of being being human—that we all have our challenge—that's just that's just part of it, and that mental health challenges are one of the most common ones that we have as as human beings. Well, uh, I appreciate you kicking it off, and and man, it will be with us here for a few more minutes. Uh, Air Talk producer Manuel Viadarez. We're also talking with Pasadena-based psychologist Sing Fang Chang, and I'd like to hear from you if you're part of an immigrant family where this has been particularly challenging, either because of, um, you know, maybe there's a cultural aspect that you don't, um, you know, raise anything with your parents that could be a problem for them. You don't talk about that. And maybe that scene is disrespectful or your parents uh, feel a sense of shame about, Something that you're going through and you, you, it's challenging to uh, address that. We're at 866-893-5722 or email us at atcomments at org. Uh, Singfang Chang, hopefully you heard what, what Manny was mentioning and that seems to me that's a, that's a fairly common thing where the, where the parent takes the child's challenge uh, uh, as a, as a personal shortcoming.
9: Yes, and because a lot of parents, you know, they see their life goal is to raise their children to be um you know successful and then, but then they have a very narrow vision of what successful what success looks like. So whenever the children just kinda of go want to do something a little bit different than what they think, um it's good, it's a potential conflict. But also a lot of time in the household, like in growing up culture, they don't really build the pattern of really healthy communication. It's pretty much I tell you what to do because I'm your parents and you have to listen to me. And the children don't get to voice their feelings and their own opinions and have their own can make their own decision about what they want to study, what they want to work or even who they want to marry. Um, so there's no kind of healthy communication built up um, in the family, and that that makes it even more difficult when when the adult children, you know, want to really build a healthy relationship with their parents. So as soon as they can, they want to move out, and that and when that happens, a lot of the time the parents will guilt trip them, um, say, "Oh, you know, I." So you know i sacrifice my whole life to raise you and this is what i get and that's another very heavy layer of emotional burden for the immigrant children as well
2: we're talking with psychologist uh, sing Fang chang joining us lisa in sierra madre good to have you with us on air talk
7: thank you larry can you hear me yeah
2: okay? yeah please go right ahead
7: Oh, okay. Love your show, first of all. Thank Thank you. you. Um, Yes, I'm an associate marriage and family therapist, and I just have to tell you from working with different cultures for clients, it is so heart-wrenching because you can tell how hard it is for the younger generation to come forward because they don't want to go against the older generation in the family. It's It's frowned upon oftentimes in many cultures, We don't talk about our stuff in public and air our dirty laundry. It's a sign of disrespect. So often when somebody comes to our practice, it's really difficult for them that, oh, wow, I can finally get help. But they're breaking the mold. It's something that's frowned upon in their family. So it's it's really tough see that struggle
2: and I can't imagine just personally how challenging that is I, I grew up in a family where um, you know psychotherapy was just sort of uh, a given that uh, would be helpful for a high percentage of people and and that mental health is is as important as physical health to emphasize it was it was very you know normal so to speak but if you have a family where this is looked at that somehow you're defective or to bring this up you're you're embarrassed. Your parents or something. I mean, on top of what you're going through from whatever the mental health challenge is, Lisa, how do you counsel clients um when they're carrying this additional burden?
7: Yeah, it's tough. I mean, I just try to reinforce them, you know, I want to earn their trust. I know this is a big deal, but that it's so brave of you to come forward and you have to have an outlet to talk about things you know oftentimes they hear from their older generation we don't go to therapy that's for crazy people you know there's a large stigma attack so i just want them to feel comfortable and give them a safe space and that that it is okay and you know you've been holding in oftentimes a lot of traumatic instances for years for fear of repercussions so, I just want them to feel supported. And that's the rewarding thing is when they can overcome certain mm-hmm. obstacles and show their family, wow, okay, it's not so bad or it gets a little more accepted. But there are still a lot of challenges for different cultures.
2: Lisa, thank you. Oh, thank you so much. I appreciate it. Lisa's an associate marriage and, and family therapist in Sierra Madre joining us. Um, Dr. Singfang Chang, what advice do you give to your clients who are dealing with that kind of pressure from parents that, you know, don't do this, don't talk with other people about it, you're making too much of this, um, you know, whatever the criticisms are of of the child or adult child coming forward with this?
9: Um, actually, my experience with um, the second generation Asian-Americans, in general, they are actually a lot more receptive about therapy. Uh, what I see more is I get a lot of requests for them to see, you know, um, my parents really need therapy. How can I get them into therapy with me uh, and talk about our relationship? So that's more of a challenge in there. And yeah. my advice for them usually is to tell them that, you know, just tell your parents that you are going through something, and it's really uh, important to have the input, so they can help the therapist to help you. And when that, when we approach that way, the the you know the older generation are more willing to come, and then bring about you know what's the core conflict in their um, their family conflict. But if it's uh, in you know, just individual therapy with the second generation, I teach them a lot about really setting boundaries, emotional boundaries with their parents, you know, talking a more gentle way, say, okay, mom, you know, I, I hear you, I know you love me, I know you mean good, however, you know, um, this is my life, I wish you can respect my decision. And, they, you know, this might not go very well the first time, but if they they keep um, be consistent with setting boundaries, eventually it's going to, to be effective to work. And then sometimes the parents would see the difference and then they would even be able to reflect on. How their behavior contribute to the conflict and be willing to join for family therapy that way,
2: I would bet that that for many of the parents that their um they're concerned that if they come in they're they're going to be criticized they're going to be blamed they'll be judged so not just the idea that this is talking with an outsider about family business but that this could could come back on them as them being responsible so when they if if they agree to take that risk in their mind to come in and to talk to a a, a therapist and and see no it's not a matter of them being attacked it's instead looking at the family system. System and and ways of addressing what the child or adult child is bringing up then hopefully that would assuage them in some respects that that they're going to be targeted for verbal attack in a session
9: yes absolutely um, well my advantage is I you know I did grow up in Taiwan and only come to the United States when I was 25 so I completely understand and identify um their more traditional cultural values and i have a big family in taiwan um so i understand how they think so that's usually how i open up with i definitely spend a very good 20 30 minutes in the first half of the session really connect with them and show them that i understand where they come from yeah um how they might feel and you know so a lot of time i'm the translator i'm not really criticizing any side but you know i'm more of the translator say you know um i completely yeah. understand where you come yeah. from
2: as an aside um, in your family when you decided to pursue this profession were they supportive or was there some skepticism about you becoming a psychologist
9: um they were supportive you know also in the beginning i just thought you know i'm just coming here to get my phd and go back so my plan was five years i didn't know that i would stay on for another 30 years and so on um so but my um my father is a PhD too, so and he he studied in Japan and go back. So I guess you know we're a pretty academic family. So in that sense, they're yeah, very supportive.
2: They were supportive. All right, we're going to continue our conversation with Sing Fang Chang, Pasadena-based psychologist whose focus is cross-cultural counseling and intergenerational family conflicts. If that's something you have something to say uh, about an experience to share, if you're part of an immigrant family and you've been challenged with getting uh, mental health services for your parents or other older family uh, relatives, or you yourself have been stymied with your own efforts to address mental health because of of some of the cultural factors that play into this, give us a call. We're at 866-893-KPCC. We'll be back in just one minute. It's Air talk. I'm Larry Mansell. So good to have you with us. Later this hour, we look at the decline in cursive. Uh, why? cursive handwriting is falling by the wayside. In many schools, it's not even taught. Is it an important skill to have? Does it provide any advantages, either neurologically or creatively or not? That's coming up later this hour. But right now, we turn our attention to mental health within immigrant communities, the challenges that adult kids can have in addressing their parents' mental health needs, whether that's depression that they see or, or anxiety, or other kinds of mental health challenges that they may see with parents uh, or with uh, kids and adult children, uh, who themselves uh, would benefit from having their parents part of of their therapy process but the parents are completely resistant to that how how to deal with that we're talking with Pasadena based psychologist Singfang Chang uh, Diana in Long Beach says it's so difficult to get older immigrant parents help nobody wants to get therapy because they don't think they need it I'm dealing with this right now with my mother that's Diana in Long Beach Dr. Chang what advice do you have for her uh diana in in breaking through with her parents and in getting help for her mom
9: yeah that, that's really a million dollar question um I, I think for you know for this population outreach is really important um so personally like as you know, I have, because of their reason, because they don't really want to seek out therapy, you know, what I did was <clears throat> I volunteered my time to be on a Chinese TV program on a monthly basis to specifically talk about mental health issues related to Asian Americans, and, you know, I did about 26 episodes in the last two years. Mm. Uh, so I, I think, it, you know, we, we will need a lot of community outreach in their own language to tell them what are the resources available and not something, the serious therapy, you know, just any kind of uh, social group. And then they can make friends. They can learn about resource. There would be one way. The other way would be um, connecting with the family doctor. Because, I think in Asian in general, they feel more justified to see a medical doctor because you're sort of, you know, you're sick, you're physically sick. So you're not seeing a psychologist because you're mentally sick. So there is, I think compared to the Western population, there's a more, you know, Asian American or Asians tend to have more psychosomatic symptoms because of that. So if there is, can be a way to kind of build the build up, system to connect with a family uh, doctor um, so say, you know, the, whole, the family doctor can just spend a few more minutes just to screen their depression, anxiety yeah. issues and talk to them a little more and connect them with a mental health counselor that way. That would be really help, helpful. It's could, harder for the children to convince their parents to do that.
2: Yeah. And I could see as, as you're saying with the Chinese language television appearances you do, how that would, that would potentially break through because then it'd be, oh, I'm seeing this um with other people, it sort of it sort of puts you in with a group of other people where if it's your adult child who is bringing this up with you, it, it, there's sort of no group experience in that. There's no you don't have a sense that you're part of something that is being raised in a larger context as OK to talk about.
9: Yeah, and I try to normalize, yeah. you know, all the mental health issues, and I did talk a lot about intergenerational conflict, so they can identify um, their family issue in them. Uh, so that's there's, there's one more indirect way to help, but I think can reach out more people that way, too.
2: Montgomery in South Los Angeles says, I don't think everyone needs therapy. I think it's up to the individual to decide. Uh, Montgomery, absolutely. And let me clarify the point I made earlier. I wasn't trying to say that everybody should have therapy. It's it's that the normalizing that Dr. Chang was just talking about, that for those who would benefit from it, that the stigma isn't there and that it is seen as something that's just a a, a, a normal. Uh, part of, of uh, just care, just like healthcare, is is a normal part. Not everyone needs to see a uh, you know a specialist and and get uh, very particular care. Kyle in Highland Park says, "My mom's family is Asian. My dad's family is white. One thing I've noticed is that there aren't a ton of therapists from these communities. It's not so much that the culture frowns on it, but some therapists don't understand the dynamics." That's Kyle in Highland Park. Dr. Chang, could you speak to
9: that please. Yeah, um, <laughs> um, my kids is biracial children too. You know, I married a, a Caucasian male, um, so I also did understand that dynamic. Um, so I, I think they, they actually are some psychologists that specialize in biracial uh, family, or as well. So um just need to sort of look hard a little bit but I, I think but bottom line in therapy you know we we learn to empathize with our clients and you know in the cross-cultural issue it's really hard even if you know i'm seeing patients or clients who are Chinese culture, there's still some sort of cultural difference, right? Because family, each family is different. So it's really like we try, we learn to empathize with our clients Mm -hmm. and we encourage them to talk about their feelings. And as long as, you know, they are feeling comfortable talking about their feelings, then um, very, very specific cultural issues sometimes can also be addressed that way.
2: Alex in Hawthorne says, I'm a child of immigrant parents. A lot of the trauma in uh, uh, my family are are, uh, with my parents being immigrants and suffering racism in their countries. I don't think we can separate depression and anxiety from the immigrant experience in these families. Alex, thank you for that. Let's talk with uh, Omri in Los Angeles. You're on AirTalk.
11: Hi, good morning. Thank you for taking my call. I just wanted to talk about how my own experience, my, my parents didn't want to go to see a therapist for many years after they were thinking to themselves that therapy is only for the crazy people. But after me and my sisters sought out therapy on our own accord and were able to seek a little bit of financial assistance from my parents, my parents were able to see, after a few sessions that we had, that it really does benefit us and it really does benefit our family. And, and afterwards, my parents were able to get the, the confidence that, that they needed to to have a shift in mindset and a new outlook on therapy and were able to get the benefits themselves as well.
2: That must have been incredibly rewarding for you, Omri, when, when that happened.
11: It was, definitely. You know, now, now th- thankfully, we're, um, you know... We've, we've been seeing some therapy as, as needed, and uh, we are able to grow much closer, in part because of the, the, the benefits and the lessons that we've, that we've learned together as a family through, through these experiences. And and it's been very important for families, especially families of, uh, you know, immigrant families to, to remember that therapy is not just for the crazies, it, it, there, there is a benefit that almost everybody can see.
2: Omri, thank you so much. Really appreciate it. And wonderful to hear the success story in your family. Amy in Arcadia, thank you for joining us. Uh, your thoughts about this, your experience.
8: Yes, thank you for having me. Um, I want to shed light on a special group. It's called, um, I would say, Generation 1.5. These are like the little x that were sent here on their own uh, when they are elementary school or um, middle schools, and basically less um, on their own to take care of themselves and go to school. So, in a lot of ways, on um, the other spectrum of overparenting, this is basically, you know, lack of parenting, and they're actually forced to really grow up in a very short time. So, emotionally, uh, they're like really shut down completely that side because, um, you know, they're still really young and um, liking this love and caring from family. They really have to shut that down off and then be able to for, uh, function normally and excel in school. So, you know, a lot of my friends are with this kind of experience. And um, fortunately, I was able to get um, therapy in my late 20s and be able to really start open up and understand what happened as a child, like these, these emotional um, kind of um, just deep deep um, pain that, you know, been suppressed. So I just want to share that. And, yeah. You know, I'll let you know. There's a little, yeah. There's a little group called little acts that are little children um, here on their own and really trying to be strong.
2: I'm so glad you brought that up because I I recall. Um, when stories were written about those kids who were essentially raising themselves uh, in the San Gabriel Valley, parents sent them here from education. And I'm so glad, Amy, that you called about this because I I haven't thought about that group that it sounds like you were a part of for for many years. And um, I, I it's got to be very, very challenging. And what if you don't mind, uh, what sort of relationship do you have with your parents now?
8: Um, actually the, the therapy really helped me to be able to talk and open up to my parents so you know maybe for the first 30 years of my life it was really just complete shutdown I don't talk to them except when I need the money from them to support but you know now that with the therapy I was able to kind of warm up with <laughs> the inner inner child so I think I'm really good uh, and be able to repair that relationship, and um, I would say, you know, I hope all the little aspects in my generation are as fortunate as me to have found a really great Therapist and help me and guide me through that difficult
2: time. Amy, thank you. Terrific call. Really appreciate it. And and another um, story of of success and family gains. Thank you very much. Um, We have Allie uh, from Los Angeles who emailed, my in-laws are immigrants and in deep denial about my brother-in-law's mental health. Last year he had a mental break and tried to stab me, ended up in a 48-hour hold. They've had a difficult time coming to terms with his mental health illness which he's likely suffered from his entire life uh if my husband hadn't stepped in and made sure he took his medication and went to therapy things would have been much worse it's a cultural stigma that parents like my in-laws often bury and deny until it's too late that's Allie in los angeles thank you for that and um Dr. Chang, I just want to get a, a closing thought from you, particularly about Amy's call um, for those, you know, kids who essentially raised themselves.
9: Yeah, I really feel for her, and I'm so glad that she called in. I think that's a group that we call parachute kids uh, because they kind of just being dropped here and no um, caretakers. And a lot of time really depends on, kind of depends on luck, you know, who they run into, whether they have a, host family or whether they, you know, if they live in a dorm, you know, whether they have a really good, uh, staff in a dorm that can be their mentor or guide their life. Uh, but some of, them, some of them just don't have that kind of luck and they really have a big gap, you know, because, uh, with their parents, because their parents are not here and they don't, the parents would not understand the kind of, um, suffering they have to go through you know you know it's hard to be a teenager already but then while they are still developing the need to adjust to a complete new culture and language and um, not being able to make friends uh can even be bullied uh, because they are different Mm -hmm. so there's a lot of of issues they had to go through and i was so glad that she found therapy helpful and I really hope that more people uh, would be as resourceful as her and know how to find help that way. I really feel for this group,
2: too. Yeah. Amy uh, had, had told our, our call screener that she and her brother were literally by themselves. And I understand that was the case with these kids that she was describing. They rented an apartment the parents did for them. She was a freshman in high school. Her brother was in middle school. And it was just the two siblings, you know, raising themselves. And she
9: probably could not even let her teacher know that's that's the way she's living. Right. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so that's
2: really sad. Thankfully. Feng Chang, thank you so much for being with us and sharing your expertise and the work that you do on cross-cultural and intergenerational family issues. Thank you very much for being with us today. Thank you for having me. Pasadena-based psychologist, Sing Fang Chang, joining us on Air Talk. When we come back, cursive writing, which appears to be dying a slow death, is is that a sad thing, or is it time to fully retire cursive handwriting? I want to hear what you have to say. We're at 866-893-5722, or email your thoughts at atcomments at kpcc.org. Please include your location and first name. We'll be back in 60 seconds. It's AirTalk. I'm Larry Mantle. I've been outside since I got in this morning, but... As I woke up this morning and then was driving into work, I looked up at the San Gabriel Mountains. What a spectacular sight with the snowfall coming down to uh, lower elevation. Just beautiful dusting of the San Gabriels. And of course in the San Bernardinos, some pretty deep snow that's fallen earlier today. There were CHP escorts of people driving uh, on Interstate 5 of the Grapevine because of the snow that was there. I uh, don't know what the current status is, but uh, sure beautiful to look at. I want to hear from you what you think of cursive handwriting. Is it something you appreciate? Maybe you take pride in your handwriting. What do you think about so many schools not teaching it now, not part of the Common Core curriculum anymore. Um, Do you think there are advantages of teaching and and mastering cursive, or is that uh, no longer necessary, particularly when people are are typically typing or texting? We're at 866-893-5722. Joining me from the University of Buffalo, professor of history and expert on the history of reading and writing, Tamara Plakins. Professor Plakins is also author of Handwriting in America, a Cultural History. Professor, thank you for being with us. We appreciate it very much. Happy to be here. Uh, So, first of all, why why is it that in uh, public education we have in so many cases dropped the requirement for children to learn cursive? Well, first, you know,
12: what I want to point out is that a lot of people are in a panic about that, and they frame it as we have dropped teaching kids how to write in favor of teaching kids how to keyboard. But, of course, that's not true. Kids learn how to write. They learn how to print, right? Um, so cursive is the only thing that is in any danger here. Cursive is just another font. So we have to think about why we are so attached to that particular font. And in the past, it's certainly been the case that we have been equally attached to that font. Cursive, uh, because of the way it's taught, which is uh, you have to conform to the model of cursive, uh, the aesthetic model. You have to uh, use discipline in order to learn it. You talk about mastering handwriting. Cursive is something that really does need to be mastered. And you, when you learn it, um, there's no room for individual self-expression or individuality. You have to follow that particular model. So when in the past... And I'd say in the present, we get worried about too much individuality, too much self-expression, things that are going in dangerous directions, you know, sex, drugs, and rock and roll. Then we say, we these kids have to learn cursive. And the fact that they're not doing cursive. <laughs> it's a proxy. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's absolutely a proxy. But it's, it's, you know, it's a culture
2: war. Um, I, and you first- well, I was just going to say, though, isn't there value in the very least at being able to, One being able to read cursive, because my understanding is that often the kids who've not been taught to write in cursive don't figure out how to read it. And, you know, a lot of of what you're going to be doing uh, at some point along the way is reading other people's cursives, either with greeting cards or historical documents. Again, not everybody's a historian, but there's a very good chance educationally you're going to come across cursive and need to decipher it. Well,
12: I wonder how much of a tense that really is. You know, as fewer kids learn cursive, you're going to get fewer greeting cards in cursive. As for historical documents, well, yeah, if you know cursive, you can go back to, say, the mid-1800s. Uh, you go earlier than that, and you're going to start running into font types, types of cursive that are really hard to read. So sure, if your family letters are in English and they come from, say, the 1910s, it's great if you can read cursive. Yeah. Um, if your ancestors are from the Mayflower, you know, all bets are off. You're not
2: going to <laughs> read. The I. I I have my grandparents' letters they wrote to each other when my grandfather was serving in World War II. Those letters are pretty hot. If I if I couldn't read my grandmother's cursive and his response, I wouldn't know I wouldn't know how hot they were for each other. We're at 866-893-5722. It, it showed them to me in a whole different way. I thought I knew them so well. 866-893-5722. Carmela in Highland Park says I'm a retired school teacher and a beautiful handwriting i love teaching children cursive without giving them a grade just letting them learn that's carmela uh, jesse in eagle rock says i'm a millennial i was really looking forward to learning cursive which was supposed to be taught in third grade but they didn't teach it so i got a tutor outside of school i worry that if we stop teaching cursive we won't be able to read old writing and with that in mind meg in los angeles emailed us i'm a former ceo of a historical research institute and there's much discussion in academic circles about up-and-coming historians lacking the ability to decipher primary source documents because they never learned to read cursive text. Yes, there are transcriptions, but studying the primary source of historic information is vital to scholarship, and it'll be a great loss if future generations of scholars have to rely on interpretations instead of reading and studying original manuscripts themselves. That's from Meg in Los Angeles. Ed and Gliselle Park says, everyone has to write, why not beautifully? It's bizarre for people to not value the simple act of the written word. And uh, Jonna in Pasadena says, perhaps cursive should be taught as an optional language, like ASL, I can't think how printing would be faster than cursive in journaling. Uh, before we break, I did want to ask you, Professor Thornton, about the speed issue because... Um, Uh, The reason I use cursive when I write longhand is because I find it faster than doing block letters. But um, has has anyone ever done a side-by-side speed comparison?
12: I've done speed comparisons, you know, with mixed results. And usually the uh, studies are aiming to either support cursive or support printing. So, uh, you know, just how
2: objective it
12: is, that's a real question that we have to ask.
2: All right. Uh, You know. Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry.
12: Well, it's it's been an argument for a long time and printing, you know, was not something that students originally learned. Originally they started right with cursive and it was only in the 1920s that students some students anyway started with printing and the idea then was these kids are too little to master this difficult manual skill of cursive and we want them to be able to express their ideas at a young age. So let's teach them printing okay and and when that was introduced the idea was we never have to go to cursive writing is all about self-expression but the schools didn't think that way that was way too progressive for them and then doing just printing was limited to progressive education schools and then in the 20s we moved to that regimen we have now where you start off with printing and then move to cursive in the second or third grade i like that idea of optional you know to me Writing is, um, it is about self-expression. It's about communication, right? We, sometimes we need it to communicate. Um, sometimes we want to com- communicate beautifully, okay. but we don't have to. And it's, it's kind of like swimming. You know, everybody has to be able to swim or they'll drown. But not everybody has to uh,
2: learn the Olympic butterfly. Hold hold that thought. I want to share a couple listener comments, then we'll come back after a break. Robert in the city of Orange said, when I'd reached my clinical status as a med student, uh, the attending had taken notice of the notes I'd taken on the patient. He commented about how clean and clear my handwriting was and asked me to make it less legible, especially when signing. (laughs) That's Robert in Orange. Oh, my gosh. Uh, Mark, in downtown Los Angeles. I think it should be encouraged. I work at LA Unified as a custodian. I see these kids' papers and writing, and they use their creativity. They can find new ways to write and draw, and I think learning, it can stimulate those creative thoughts. Mark, thank you so much. Uh, it, see, Sally in Palm Desert. As a teacher of 40 years' experience, I value cursive. I remember reading a study that college students who took notes in their own handwriting retain more than those that type. I always made sure my English student took notes in their own writing. Sally, thank you. We'll continue our conversation with University of Buffalo professor of history, uh, Tamara Plakins Thornton. Uh, She is also an expert on the history of reading and writing and handwriting in America. That's the title of her book from a number of years ago. We'll be back in one minute. NPR's Here and Now comes up next. They're going to be looking at the now disbanded Scorpion unit of the Memphis Police Department. That the unit to which the officers uh, who were fired and have been criminally charged uh, in the killing of Tyree Nichols. Um, they were part of that unit. We'll hear more about it on NPR's here and now in just a few minutes, followed by fresh air with Terry Gross at noon. right now on air Talk, cursive writing is our focus. we 're talking with a historian from the University of Buffalo, uh, Tamara Plakins Thornton, uh, sharing her expertise. Diane and Irvine says i 'm an occupational therapist who works on fine motor skills, and some kids are better with cursive than printing, and some aren't. It's very individual. Uh, Let's talk with uh, Margaret in Palm Desert. Good to have you with us. What do you think about whether cursive should be uh, mandatorily taught in schools?
7: Um, I'm a retired teacher, math and science, and I feel very strongly that cursive needs to be put into the art department. There's so much other skills that kids need to learn, including keyboarding, uh, communication, speaking, uh, printing is fine, but the, the art of calligraphy is writing, and that should be taught as a, an extra kind of thing, maybe in the art class. There's too many more, too many other things that we need to teach in the classroom that we'd have to abandon for the time to teach call- calligraphy handwriting.
2: All right, Margaret, I appreciate it. Let's talk with Jervy in Pasadena, the uh, writer Jervy Turvalon. I'm sure, uh, Jervy, what was your experience?
0: Um, when I was in the first grade, um, the nun decided that my penmanship, my cursive writing was so bad that I had some learning disability and that followed me all the way to high school where, you know, a teacher discovered that I, the counselor discovered I had a college level reading score, but, um, I still have bad handwriting, but, uh, it was kind of disappointing to be considered to be, you know, sort of, uh, uh, with a learning disability.
2: Well, and here you go on to be an acclaimed writer, Jervy. Um, so, so clearly, uh, judging you based on your cursive was was a bad call by the by the teachers, by the nuns.
0: Yeah, and I'm still really bad at it. All
2: right, Jervy, I appreciate it. Jervy Turvalon, 866 eight six six eight nine three kpecc Maria in Ontario, I understand you're a professor of genealogy. What are your thoughts of this? Well, I'm a professional genealogist. Oh, professional. I'm sorry. That um, when I discover something in a family
7: record, and it may be five, six generations, your great-great-grandfather, and I hand the document to the person, and they have not just a piece of history, but a piece of their history. And if they don't read cursive, they're not going to be able to understand what that document is. Or what that signature looks like and i think that is such an important personal level bringing that history into your family as well as history in general we will lose so much without cursive writing.
2: Yeah, I can't imagine not being able to read cursive. Maria, thank you. Professor Thornton, um, is it possible to be able to decipher cursive writing well without being able to write in cursive? Well,
12: I think that probably varies with the individual. Some people are just more talented than others at that. And I appreciate, sure, it's a wonderful thing to be able to read a document in the original Uh, You know, again, if you go back far enough, you won't be able to do it with modern cursive because older cursives were not the same as modern cursives. But beyond that, think about what Margaret, the teacher, said about how much time it takes in the curriculum to teach kids cursive. Is it really worth it? Why are we so fixated on learning a particular font type? Because that's really what it boils down to. Why are we so hot under the collar about a particular font type that we actually have legislation, either, you know, requiring it in many states that this font type cursive be taught and I think it really does go back to these culture wars
2: there's a sense Well, these are um, not culture warriors though these people that are calling that are writing that are sharing their thought. it's not about a culture war for them let me share some more Rana in Pasadena emailed my sister lives in assisted living and has trouble communicating with her caregivers because they can't read cursive it's a health care danger for her Sandy in Burbank emailed I'm a writer and editor still writing long hand when I'm drafting ideas because it slows me down and encourages me to think more about what I'm writing than when I type at a keyboard. Also, cursive has a rhythm and organic flow I love it. it; makes the writing part of my breathing. I took a parcel to the post office. The clerk couldn't read the label. That's Sandy in Burbank. Betty in Koreatown emailed, my nephews went to school in France. There, children learned cursive before printing. It was considered easier to learn. Um, Uh, It was something uh, to see my five-year-old nephew write fluently in cursive. Cursive is essential to communicate between people, writing quick notes, etc. Beauty has nothing to do with it. Moreover, one can express ideas much better with the faster writing of cursive. Uh, So a number of listener comments uh, coming in. Karen in Santa Monica. My daughter studies Russian and Mandarin in terms of her background in cursive. It makes writing and reading in those languages easier easier um michael in santa monica there are a lot of skills that used to be necessary that aren't anymore like slide rulers to do calculations nobody's bemoaning them as time goes on there are certain skills that become unnecessary that's michael in santa monica and jenny in del rey says what about signatures how will kids learn to write their signatures and sign documents but professor thornton um that doesn't seem to be a problem people can still sign if they don't write cursive
12: Sure. You know, again, a number of those comments—they're confusing cursive with writing longhand. Uh, and printing works just fine for a signature. Uh, and like the the person who said, "Well, I like that my students, when they take notes in longhand rather than keyboarding," fair enough. But does it really make a difference whether they're doing it in cursive or in printing? So I think printing works fine. Uh, it doesn't mean that there
2: aren't special uses right. uh, or that there isn't value to curses. All right. Is it- Professor, I'm sorry, I need to conclude. That's from the University of Buffalo historian Tamara Plakins Thornton. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm sorry I didn't have time for all the listener comments. We were deluged, which I love to see, but I'm sorry I couldn't get some on the air. I did read all of them, though, I assure you. Thank you so much. Have a terrific day. NPR's Here and Now is next, followed by fresh air at noon. I'll be back with you tomorrow morning at nine.